Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. I felt particularly safe today during worship, didn't you? (laughs) Praise God. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm just a kid, but th- thank God for just our military, our civil servants. We've got lots of policemen and firefighters in this church. I mean, come on, man. We are blessed people. Uh, the world's a broken place, and these folks have to deal with it. So thank you guys and gals for what you do. Yeah. Um, If you have a Bible, open it to Romans 11 is where we find ourselves this morning. Romans 11, we're going to read verses 25 through 32 in just a moment. And um, and we're going to end, not Romans 11, we're going to look at the last few verses next week where Paul summarizes, I think, the whole point of Romans up to this point. But our text this morning is is really the end, the summary, the the culmination of of the argument that Paul's been making up to this point in in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. So so here's my plan. Um, I I want us to to, uh, work through the text. And as we work, we're going to stop along the way and we're going to see some truths unfold in the text and and attempt to apply it as we go. Today, and really next week, uh, if you've noticed, I hope you've noticed, that up to this point, Romans has been very heavy with theology. Have you noticed that? It's a deep theological book. It's probably the most theological book in the New Testament, really in the whole Bible. Paul is explaining the gospel and really how the whole Bible fits together. And that has been the case from Romans 1 through 11. It's been heavy and it's been intense and we've been in it for a long time. In Romans chapter 12 through the end of the book, he pivots and he starts to then look at the practical matters of how all of this truth that we've been learning about the gospel in Romans 1 through 11 applies to our lives. So in a couple weeks, we're going to kind of come up for air a little bit and and be heavy for the remainder of our time in Romans in application. But we're not there. We're not there just yet. So we're going to read Romans 11, verse 25 through 32. Dig in. If you're with us for the first time today, you're visiting, it may be a little... um, it may be a little confusing, a little, a little discombobulating, because we're right in the middle of a very complex argument, but as I say often, I, I think if you just keep paying attention, you'll catch up to the logic that Paul has in this text, and the burden is on me to hopefully explain it to you in a way and sort of make you understand the point that Paul is, is saying at this point. Here is a quick summary of where we are in Romans at this point. Paul has really said that the problem with all mankind is that we are sinners, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. All people are sinners, and that sin has separated us from God and made us right recipients of God's just and holy wrath. And because sin has not only separated us, it's it's really spiritually killed us, it's neutralized us, it's made us unable to do anything to change the situation, God has done something for us. He has put forward his son, 
God the Son, Jesus, to become a man, to live a perfect life, to lay down his life on the cross, to bear that wrath that should be ours and extinguish it and satisfy it, to take our punishment in our place and defeat death, sin, and the grave by rising again, calling all people, Jew and Gentile, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord to trust not in their own righteousness, which is as filthy rags, but in Christ and his righteousness. So that's the good news of the gospel. And Paul promises the people that he's writing to in the first century church that God is faithful and he can be trusted. And those whom he saves, he will bring them all the way home. That's Romans 1 through 8. But now he, he addresses this question, this doubt that he anticipates is in the back of the minds of the people that he's writing to in the Roman church in Rome is that, well, wait a minute. How can I trust God for myself right now in the first century if in centuries past it seems like God's word failed with Israel, with the Jews in the Old Testament? So if it seems like God has not accomplished what he said he would do with Israel. Can he be trusted to accomplish what he said he would do in my life as I'm battling sin and persecution and all of these things that these first century Christians were dealing with? And so Paul's point in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that, no, no, God can be trusted. That really, when you think about Israel... True Israel is not just ethnic Israel, it's not descendants physically of Abraham, but it is spiritual Israel. So he really redefines what it means to be Jewish. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11, specifically beginning of Romans 9, says that all of these promises that God gives to Israel are fulfilled in true Jews who are children of Abraham, not by flesh, but by faith. In other words, believers in the promises that God gave to Abraham and Israel in the Old Testament, which is, in shadow form, the gospel. So, if you are a believer in Jesus, the Bible says that you are a true spiritual Jew. And that's his point in Rome. So, so, so then that's... The point there is that, well, God has not failed because he has a people. But now in Romans 11, I know this is a long introduction. Hang with me, please. In Romans 11, he's coming back around and he's saying, but what about those ethnic Jews? Is God done with them yet? And his answer to that is a resounding no. God is not only faithful to make a people for himself, but he's even doubly faithful to come back around and do a work amongst the people that have rejected him, the ethnic Jews. So, let's start reading in Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes this, and, and remember, in Romans 11, he's writing primarily, he's addressing Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus and who are battling spiritual pride and arrogance towards Jews. And so he says in verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so let's stop there and just, just look at this verse here. This mystery that Paul is talking about, it's not, it's not something that we can't understand uh, it's not some esoteric thing that only a certain spiritual 
uh, group of people can see. In, in Paul's language in the New Testament, when he uses the word mystery, he means something that was previously hidden, which is now disclosed. So don't be intimidated by that word mystery. It's really just the unfolding revelation of God's gospel in the Bible that we have the benefit of being able to see and understand. And what he's saying, this mystery is, is that there was a partial hardening. In other words, God is hardening the hearts of Israel. And in verse 25, you have to, I think, contextually see that what he means by Israel in verse 25 is ethnic Jews. And that's the difficult part about Romans 9, 10, and 11. When he uses the word Israel or Jews, you have to read carefully to determine whether or not Paul is speaking about spiritual Israel, in other words, all believers, Jews and Gentiles that believe in Jesus, or ethnic Israel. But I think clearly here in verse 25, he's talking about ethnic Israel. He's saying that a hardening has come upon them. In other words, many of them don't believe until, until, so there's this timing that is under God's providence until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God is in control. And what has happened with Israel in the Old Testament is not something that came outside of God's plan or control. In fact, this hardening came upon Israel according to God's plan. Because remember what we read last week. He said that God has hardened Israel so that through the hardening of Israel, the gospel would go to other peoples. And the gospel is going to other peoples so as to make Israel jealous so that they will come and find Jesus. So all of this, friends, it's, I mean, it's almost as if God is in complete and utter control of this whole thing. <laughs> he is. And when you read verses, I mean, I know that we don't put verse 25 on coffee cups or t-shirts, but it's really, really important to give you a biblical view of God. Do you see this, friends? Behold the God of the Bible, not the God of American trinkets and comforts. It says that God is in control. A hardening has come upon Israel until... Not a moment before and not a moment after until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? It means that God is is waiting. He's, He's actively wooing and bringing at this particular time in redemptive history. He's bringing Gentiles to faith in Jesus, the fullness, the the full number of all those that God has set his affection upon in past, the full number, not one less and not one more, are, are streaming through the centuries into the kingdom. Friends, that's happening here in Columbus. That's happening in North Africa. That's happening in France. That's happening in Uzbekistan. It's happening in Kosovo. It's why Logan and Molly Copley, this, later this year, Lord willing, will go to Serbia because this mission of God, this, this point in redemptive history is currently happening. The fullness of the Gentiles are coming in. The gospel is being preached. Friends, that's why we as a church are not here for ourselves to play tiddlywinks, but the mission of God, missions is the life of the local church, and it's the sending of missionaries abroad, because this is what human history is marching towards, the fullness of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. That's what, that's what I think Paul, or the, the John 
says at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, he says, here's this wonderful picture. I believe we read it last week. After this, I looked, Revelation 7, verse 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, that's the end for which all things were created. There's uh, many things we could say there. I mean, that just transforms how we view other peoples, other tribes, other languages. We are brothers and sisters with all of these other cultures who will come to faith, not obviously every single person, but God has a people from all the peoples, and he is actively bringing them to himself. Let's not be discouraged by the weakness, maybe, of this church or the church in our city, or maybe even the church in America, that that may just be a very limited sphere of our perspective. Friends, God is is on the throne, as we read this morning in Psalm 33, and he is actively carrying out exactly what he intends to carry out, and he is saving people in droves all across the world. let's, Let's step back and consider then just what this verse tells us about, about God. And here's a truth that I want us to see that we'll have on the screen. And it's this first truth as we work through this text is that God controls and works all things together for the good of his people. God controls and works all things together for the good of his people. So do you see the big, the big truth here about how God is in charge of redemptive history? He's hardened Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He will not lose one person that he has set his affection on. Everything is happening. Missionaries are being sent out. Local churches are being planted. All these things are happening. It's hard, friends. It's really, really hard, but we shouldn't be surprised. God told us it would be hard. We're struggling. We're striving. We're skinning up our elbows and our knees, spiritually speaking, but none of this is not according to God's plan. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. How does this apply then as I see this big picture of a God who's in control of redemptive history that I take that beautiful, transcendent truth and I grab a hold of it and I bring it down into my life life in my context. And it's this, that God is controlling all things and he's working it together for the salvation, for the good of his people. How does this apply to you? Friend, you you may be a person in this room, and I think this is prevalent amongst young people. I I know this mindset existed in my mind when I was younger, is that, you know, I I will kind of confess the Lord, but I'm going to kind of do what I want to do and then at a certain point, whatever that is, I'm going to kind of grow up, I'll click it in, and I'll start taking God seriously, and I will, I will start living for Him. Friends, you are assuming upon God's grace in your life, you're assuming that you know the timing of your life, and you don't. You don't. Listen, listen, to, what, listen to what Peter says at the end of 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, 
not wishing, wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- reach repentance. I think that verse 9 is a picture of what's happening here in verse 25. He's until the fullness of all those that he's called. He's, he's, he's waiting patiently. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's wooing all those, and he's bringing them in. But the day, but then, verse 10 is a kind of warning, lest we should interpret God's patience as, 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 a, as a kind of, you know, bumper to just do whatever we want to do. Listen to what verse 10 says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Then what's, what does Peter reason from this? Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So if you're waiting to just kind of get serious with the Lord, oh, friends, be chastened by that. He will come like a thief. And if you're waiting to be called or used by the Lord, friends, what does he say in verse 12? He says, hasten the coming of the day of God. Because we don't know, we don't know. So we we should have this kind of confidence that God is in control of all things. But do you see how how that view of God can, there's there's ditches that you can fall off in air. A high view of God's providence and sovereignty in all things, when wrongly viewed, wrongly causes some people to sort of be laissez-faire and comfortable and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. And friends, that's the... 180 degrees in the wrong direction according to the Bible. Because of that, get busy, live for God, come to him now, send missionaries, witness to your unbelieving friend, go, do it, do it, do it. That's the, that's the emphasis of, of the Bible. And then even more personally, just let's just apply this. You, you may be stressed out about some circumstance in your life. Not you may be. Come on, you are. Stop it. You are. Everybody in this room is, right? Stop Stop fooling. Everybody in this room. Some of you kind of can let the water roll off your back a little bit more than others. I envy you. But all of us got stuff that we're anxious about, right? What is this truth of, of just this God who's in control of human history? What should it produce in those Deep crevices of a heart, it should produce a kind of fastened trust to God's goodness. What does Paul do with this truth? Well, earlier on in Romans 8, he says that God works all things together for the good of those that love God. This God who's in control, this truth actually lands in the very details of our lives. So friends, right now, get out of just listening to sermon mode and get into considering your life mode. Don't don't let this be something that's just kind of a point that seems like something you should agree with. Right now, do your best to ignore any distractions and consider the implications of this biblical truth in your life. And do not let yourself be overruled by subjective feelings of worry and anxiety. God is in control of human history, and if God can bench press 300 pounds, he can lift a little five-pound pink weight that is your life, and he can handle it, and he can do it right now, whatever it is, whatever it is right now, actively in your mind, 
confess that that thing that you are troubled by is underneath the good care and sovereignty of God who controls all things. That doesn't mean that it's going to go away. But it means that God has good purposes in it and will even use the strain on your life because of it to produce in you more dependence on him. Because friends, God made you not to get out of temporary situations, but to prepare you for eternal ones. Let me just keep reading. Verse 26. All right, well, verse 26 is one of those verses that commentaries have been written on and is one of the most complex and debated verses in all of the Bible. So let's try and explain it all in about four minutes. <laughs> so he says, remember what he's just said, he said, until the fullness, so there's this God who's in control of human history. And remember the point that God is not done with ethnic Israel yet. So what is he going to do with ethnic Israel? And I think verse 26 and 27 answer that. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. So he's saying that all Israel will be saved. Now, who is Israel in this context? Does he mean all believers in that sense, like true Israel? Jews and Gentiles, all that believe in Jesus? Well, I don't think that's the case because just in the previous verse, in verse 25, he's distinguished between a hardening that's come upon ethnic Israel and then the fullness of the Gentiles. So it seems very unlikely that he would all of a sudden switch the meaning of Israel in verse 26 to mean spiritual Israel. I think he means in verse 26 that in this way all of ethnic Israel will be saved as it is written, and he's going to quote here verse, a verse from the Old Testament in Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's a prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah 59 verses 20 and 21. Where it's speaking into the future about this day when the deliverer, I think clearly that means Jesus, will come from Zion, from heaven, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this, verse 27, will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that all of Israel, I think ethnic Israel, will be saved in a future time. Does that mean that every single Jew and that future time, I think, is when Jesus is connected to Jesus coming back, either shortly before or as he's coming back, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it's saying that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to banish sin and cause Israel to trust in himself. I think this means that there will be a future mass evangelism of ethnic Jews that will be very close to the coming of Jesus. Does this mean that every single Jew that is alive at that time when he says all Israel will be saved? Uh, probably not. The Bible often will use the word all in, in, a, in a kind of descriptive way and it doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. Maybe, maybe it will. Uh, that would be wonderful if it does. But probably not, but maybe. But at least what I think this text is telling us 
is a great majority of Jews towards the end of this age, before or when Jesus comes back, will be saved. I think that's what the text says. But it says in this way, and this is super important for us to understand, and this is where I think sometimes people misunderstand the relationship of God's working in the Old New Testament amongst ethnic Jews and amongst the church. He says in this way. What is this way that they will be saved? They will be saved in this way as Jesus comes back and reveals himself and takes away their sins and opens their heart to Christ. The point being is that any Jew in the future who is saved is not going to be saved merely because they are ethnic Jews. They will only be saved because Jesus will open their heart to the gospel and they will come in the same way anybody has ever come in to believe in Jesus, through him and his work on the cross. Nobody is saved merely because they are an ethnic Jew. That would undermine the gospel of grace. No, friends, all will be saved and only saved by faith in Jesus. And let me just, just, just go in a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but I think it's important. It's, it's, a, it's a secondary issue theologically as we think about modern-day Israel. I think this text helps us and chastens us to be careful about how we as American Christians consider and think about Israel. Israel, as a modern-day nation, is clearly important. I think that this text is saying that at the end of the age, ethnic Jews, whether or not they're living in political Israel, national Israel now, wherever they may be, a great number of them, maybe all of them, will be saved. Clearly, God is not done with them yet. But this is where I think sometimes American Christians get a little cloudy. He will not save them merely because they're Jews. He will save them because they are trusting in Jesus, which Jesus will bring about on or about that day. So when we talk about, and I think this is a misunderstanding of what the Bible has to say about Israel, when American Christians say things like, if we as a nation bless Israel, then God will bless us. I think that is a misunderstanding of the Bible and what it says about Israel. Israel is not promised anything merely because they are Israel. Israel or anybody that comes to Jesus will only be promised true sonship, true Jewishness because they have faith in Jesus. So Israel's Greatest need is not American political support, although that may be, for a lot of reasons politically, a wise thing to do. Israel does not need American political support. It needs the gospel. And when the Bible talks about the blessings of God's people and those who inherit the blessings of Abraham, it's speaking about those who by faith Trust in the God of Abraham, which is Jesus. So the blessing of Israel is for believers, not people who are ethnic Jews. 
So any ethnic Jews that get the blessing of Israel get it because they have faith in the one true Jew, the only obedient Jew, who is Jesus. And we, we undermine the gospel when we communicate to the world that God, like Israel, some rabbit's foot, that if we just align ourselves with politically, God will somehow bless us, but we can do whatever we want as a country. Friends, there's nothing in the Bible like that. God will bless those who are in Christ. And the only way that anybody is saved is in Christ. And God is so glorious that even though he has, and this is the language he uses in Romans 11, even though he has cut off the ethnic branch of Israel because of their unbelief, because he's so gracious, he's saying that there's coming a day when he's going to pick, off, pick up that branch off the ground that he cut off and rejected because of their unbelief, and he is going to reattach it to the tree, which is Christ. Do, do, do you see that, why that's so important? Friends, let's step back and think about what this is telling us. This leads us to the second truth, and it is this, is that Jesus, Jesus is the only hope for all peoples, Jew or Gentile. Jesus is the only hope. He's the only one who will answer the problem that all of us have. Remember what the problem is. All the way back at the beginning of Romans, it says that the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind. So Jews and Gentiles and everybody in this room has the same problem. It is the justice of God against us in our rebellion. And the only way that that rebellion can be satisfied is through Jesus. And what he has done, his life, his righteousness, his obedience, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. Now, I, you know, getting into these weeds a little bit theologically with Israel... I thought, should I do this? Ah, I think some people need to know this. But my fear is, is that some of you are like, oh man, I was enjoying the first 15 minutes of this sermon. Now it got kind of, wow, what, what in the world? It sounds like Charlie Brown's parents talking right now, just wah, 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 wah. Well, let me, let, me bring it, let me bring all of this kind of maybe stuff that you just haven't thought about. And really, what does this mean to you that that God will save Jews only by Jesus, not because they're Jews. What does it mean to you? It means, friends, for you, what are, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Some heritage? Some good intention? Some, some basic morality that you think separates you from other people? No, friend, that will not save you. The only hope any human being has is Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. He is the tree that God has planted that he's putting all of the branches onto. That's your only hope. So, friends, do you see that if you are a self-righteous church person who is proud of yourself because of your morality... You are in the same position that the Old Testament Jews were in whom God rejected. And God will not save you because you're a basic good person because really you're not. Your only hope is Jesus. And if you are trusting in Jesus, hearing that afresh should humble your heart and cause you to worship afresh.
There's nothing in your hands you can bring simply to the cross you must cling. That's the point of this text. That Jesus is the only hope for all peoples, Jew or Gentile. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, I think he's speaking about ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, there's that word again we've been talking a lot about. In other words, God's prerogative to save apart from any, anything in the person, but simply because he has determined to save a people, but as regards to God's election, his purpose of choosing those whom we will save for himself, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Isn't that kind of interesting? In one sense, in verse 28, God is calling, Paul is calling Israel at the same time, both the enemies of the gospel and beloved by God. And isn't that, isn't that the state of every human soul before you come to faith in Jesus? The Bible says that in eternity past, if you're a Christian, think about this, just think about this in a kind of temporal, chronological sense. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, Romans 8, other places, that before the, before the foundations of the earth, God predestined you for adoption through Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, before you did anything good or bad, that's what Romans 9 is about when we're talking about these two twins. Remember the analogy of Jacob and Esau in the womb? Before they did anything good or bad, God, because of his purpose of election, loved Jacob. He, he determined to save Jacob and not Esau. So, before you were born, if you're a Christian, not because of anything good in you, but because of God's grace, you were born into sin as an enemy of God in a chronological sense. So, in eternity past, he set his affection on you. Then you were born in time. You're a little stinker, just like everybody else. You're a sinner. You're an enemy of God, rebelling against him. But because in eternity past, he has determined to save you, he arranges situations in your life, he brings you into a family to hear the gospel, he sends you to that church, that friend, that crusade, whatever, that TV program, he causes your eyes to hit that page, and he, in your deadness, awakens your heart to the gospel and causes you to have faith in him, he gives you the gift of faith, whereby you now, because he's given you a new heart, have this faith and can behold Jesus. You are now saved because you're trusting in Jesus and not yourself. And he does this all for the glory of his grace, not because of anything good in you, but simply because of his love for you. But there was a time when you were an, an enemy of God, but yet an eternity past for loved by God. Do you see that? that? That may be some of you right now. And let me tell you something. 
When God forloves somebody, he doesn't lose you. If you're miserable right now in your sin, you still may be an enemy of God, but one of the reasons you're miserable is because <laughs> the hound of heaven is on your trail and he's gonna get you. It's just a matter of time. The fullness of the Gentiles, you know, God's, it's just gonna happen. So stop being miserable Lay down, cry uncle, and let God put his gracious jaws of mercy around your neck and drag you into his kingdom. That's not the greatest analogy, but you get my point. It's a good thing, right? You're like, I don't want any part of that. <laughs> but verse 29 is actually the verse I want us to look at. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Friends, he turns his enemies into his children. Now, don't misunderstand me. This truth is not, do not interpret this as a license to continue in your sin until God decides to snap you out of it. If that's the way you view this, if that's the way you view God's sovereign electing grace, you don't understand grace and you need to go back and read Romans 6. No, friends, this is not a license to sin. This text is a verse for the weak, for the frail, for those who despair of themselves, wondering whether or not God could ever love them after what they have done and how they have failed them. And this verse is a resounding shout from heaven, yes! Israel disobeyed God for centuries, but God set his love on them and his calling is irrevocable. God has you. He's going to get you. Which leads us to this final truth that we'll end on. And it is this. Is that salvation, salvation from beginning to end is God's unstoppable, irrevocable, power of sin breaking, unfading work. It's God's work. Salvation is an unbreakable chain of God's mercy in the life of his people. And this truth is meant to wake up slumbering sinners and to strengthen struggling saints. Listen to Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. Paul says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And look at verse 30, this unbreakable chain of salvation. And those, not one more, not one less, whom he predestined, he also called. And those, not one more, not one less, whom he called, he also justified. And those, not one more, not one less, whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're in Christ, you're standing with God. His mercy in your life is so sure and certain that Paul is speaking of 
all of this in the past tense in that last word of verse 30 that you have already been glorified. You're still working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're still struggling with things. But it is so sure and certain of what God is going to do in your life that Paul speaks of it in the past tense. There are people in this room who are struggling with sin that need to be chastened and fortified and strengthened with that truth and let it be, let it be like a buoy. Let it be an anchor in the midst of stormy seas and those seas may be stormy even because of your own residual sin but fasten yourself to that truth confess it to a brother or sister and say help me with this help me with this let this truth fasten me to what God is surely and certainly promised in my life friends that 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 is the that's ground zero of fighting sin in the Christian life William Arnaud, it's been a while since I read this. He was, an eight, he was a, a 19th century in the 1800s British theologian, contemporary of Spurgeon. He said this, and it's one of my favorite, favorite quotes. He said, the difference between an unconverted and converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God while the other takes part with a reconciled God against his own sins. So do you see that? God will save Israel, and it's irrevocable. What does that mean in your life and my life as we stare at that grand theological important truth? Is it, if you're a believer, God's work and mercy gifts and calling are irrevocable, unstoppable in your life, and so fasten yourself to that. And consider which one of these two men you are like that William Arnaud says. Is, are, you, are you taking sin side against God? Or, or are you taking God's side against your sin? And if you are, and if you're, if you're tempted to, to loosen your grip on God, let, let the certainty of this truth put energy in your hands, spiritually speaking, so that you can grab hold of God because he will not let you go. And Paul summarizes all of this with, with this truth. For just as you were at one time disobedient, he's speaking to the Gentiles here, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, meaning the Jews, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In other words, God's, God's bringing this boomerang full circle. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. All, what is Paul saying here? All come the same way. Nobody gets to heaven. Nobody gets to be reconciled with God. Nobody gets the wrath of God satisfied for them because of their righteousness, because of their ethnicity, because of anything that they have done. It is all God's unstoppable, irrevocable mercy. And what is Paul's response to this? Friends, I just have to read the end of the chapter. And no, it doesn't get you out of a sermon on this text next week, but I just have to read it. 
Romans 11, verse 33 through 36, this is Paul's response to all of this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, the purpose of Romans 9, 10, and 11, very practically in an everyday sense in the life of the Christian, is we see God's great redemptive plan unfolding in the Old and New Testaments amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, is we are to stare at that, be fortified for our life and walk with him, and it should cause us to worship God who is in control of all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So friends, let's, let's do what that text says and let's worship God right now. Let me pray. Father, uh, thank you for these words and this enormous truth. The fullness of the Gentiles is marching in. That's the most important thing going on in the universe today is the, the completion of your plan of redemption. So to that end, may we send out more missionaries like this lovely couple that we heard from this morning. May we be more about your business in our lives on mission. May we share the gospel with more of our unbelieving friends. May we make our life together as a church less about us and more about what you are doing to bring the fullness of all those that you have saved that you have elected in the past to faith in you. May we, may, may we be part of this grand, glorious work. And may, Lord, that produce humility in us as we see that the only way that anybody will come to faith in, G, in you is through Jesus. May we consider that in our own lives. May we, may we not let any false hopes rise up in our hearts and may we trust in you alone and may we as a result worship you more rightly and for my friends that are in this room that came in not knowing Jesus Lord would you take this this message this text this truth and would you melt their hearts and would you save them would you cause their dead heart to come alive so that they can look up and trust and see Jesus and Lord would you do all of this I pray for your glory, for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.